I don't know if you saw the alternative text there. Seeing Christ in the place of love, and you're seeing no one in the place of nothing. Christ lifted me. Christ lifted me when no one else could help. Christ lifted me. That is the personal uh, focus. We know God is love. And so whatever James Rowe had in mind when he wrote that song, he obviously was thinking about the Lord. But when we think about Christ lifting us, rescuing us, it's a wonderful thing to remember. I hope uh, even just singing about God's love encourages your heart. And uh, as we go through the week, if you find yourself singing one of those songs. Let's turn our Bibles tonight to Psalm 119. We'll begin in verse 49 in this stanza and read down through verse 46. Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. O Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. This has become mine that I observe your precepts. And praise the Lord for his word that he has given to us for our instruction. If you had to pick out a key word in this section, what would it be? Key word doesn't have to be the word with capital letters doesn't have to be mentioned more than once could be a theme that runs through it yeah remember you can see it in verse 49 at the beginning you see it in verse 52 you see it in verse 55 And I think in concept, you can see it throughout this section. Remembering God's word is the title tonight. We're not going to make it real far in this section. Uh, Lord willing, we'll look at it again. But as you think about the times in your life when you have struggled or you've gone through trial or You're in affliction. What keeps you going? I think as you look at David through this psalm as a whole, you would say it's God's word that is central to his life. And in times of trial and difficulty and trouble, it's God's word 
that gives him help. I think you can see through the psalm a theme of affliction. And you can see in verse 50 that he is in affliction. He is in need of hope, verse 49. He is being persecuted, verse 51. He sees others, verse 53, who are forsaking God's laws. He is encouraged by the songs that he is singing about God's word in his house. And in the night even, as he says in verse 55, what's occupying his mind is not just the word of God, but the word of God comes from God. And when someone says, I remember your name in the night, he's thinking about God and who he is. And when you think about someone's name, you think about who they are. And oftentimes what we know of people is their words, not just their actions. Of course, God, we know him because of his words, his actions, his words about himself. And you can see in another stanza of this psalm what David is desiring, what is helping him, what is encouraging him, what is his focus in life is the word of God. And we just, in the last stanza, considered love for the word of God. Do you love God's word? Is it your meditation? Do you see the blessings and the benefits that come through it to you? Well, here's another challenge to us because David is finding grace from God's word. He's finding help as he remembers God's word. Let's begin by looking at verse 49. And the remembrance that is spoken of in verse 49 is not, at least on the surface, not David, but he's calling the Lord to remember. But if you think about it, when he says, remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope, it is his remembrance of God's word that he bases his petition upon. So his calling God to remember is because he himself remembers. When it says, remember the word to your servant, one translation has it, and this is more of a interpretation, but it's remember your promise to me. Remember your promise to me. Now, when David says it here, of course, he is asking that God would remember the word to him, but the word that he uses or the, the, uh, the statement is to your servant, not just to me. And there's a difference, at least in attitude when he speaks of himself this way. There's a humility that you can see in his petition to the Lord. And I do think it's appropriate in light of the context, if God has given him a word that he has been caused to hope in, and he's asking God to remember that word, it does seem that he's waiting for something that God is going to give or do and that seems to be, I think, an appropriate way to interpret it is this is a promise. It's a promise of God. So 
remembering God's promises, but then praying to God, asking him to remember his words. Now, does God forget anything? Of course, he's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He never could forget anything. We know that he can choose not to remember or to bring things up. The scripture says when he deals with our sin, for instance, he casts it in the bottom of the sea or he casts it behind his back. He removes something from us as far as the east is from the west. But God doesn't forget. He cannot forget. Not sure what that was. Um, he cannot forget. And because he cannot forget, uh, this petition, this remember the word to your servant is asking him to call this to mind and answer or do what he has promised to do. And I want to just encourage us as we think about God's promises. God's promises are gracious. If David, as the servant of the Lord, was promised anything by the Lord, that was grace. It's grace to you and me. If God promises me anything or you anything, it's like David when he promised Mephibosheth the offer of gracious provision in his household, a seat at his table. Mephibosheth didn't deserve that. He really didn't have anything to do with it other than his father had a relationship with David and they had a covenant together. So God's promises are gracious. And when he makes those promises to us, we can speak to him and ask him to accomplish whatever he said he was going to do. Humbly, not demanding, but humbly asking the Lord to do for us what he said that he would do. That word in which we are hoping, we have this waiting expectation that God would fulfill for us what he said that he would do. When I promise something to my children and they remind me and I'm just a frail earthly father, it matters to me. But it matters even more to God, not only because he loves us, but because his truthfulness and his integrity are at stake. He cannot but keep his promises if he has made them to us. So here is an example to us. We can pray to the Lord to remember his promises, to call those promises to mind, and to act on the basis of what he has said. Now, again, we're not reminding God of anything in the sense that he's forgotten it, but we are asking for God to fulfill what he said that he would do. Another encouragement here is that we can tell the Lord, based on David's example, that he has given us an expectation that must be fulfilled if he has said that he would do something. So this not only is a petition to God to remember his words and keep his promise, but a confession that his promises are our hope. They give us an expectation. And if it comes from God, it's a righteous expectation. Even his word is said in Romans 15, 4, to be the source of encouragement for us for whatever 
was written in earlier times, was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And he is called the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. So as we confess to God that we are hoping in his promise, we ask God to keep his promise. This is something not that we're forcing God to do, but if he's made a promise, it's actually something he wants to do. He desires to do. And uh, have you ever thought about why God makes promises in the first place? Why does a human father or mother make promises? What is it about us that obligates us and makes us debtors? We do that on purpose. What is it? I like what Thomas Manton said as he preached on this verse. He says that God delights to promise mercy before he accomplishes it, accomplishes it, shows us these things. And this resonates, I'm sure. Why does he promise mercy before he actually gives it? Because he loves us. He says his abundant love, God's heart is so kindly affected to his people that he cannot stay or wait till the accomplishment of things. But he must tell us before what he means to do for us. In other words, the promise is, as he says, an eruption and an overflow of his love. So they are gracious promise. They're loving promises. When you look at God's word and you see his promises, remember that that's a promise out of his love. The fulfillment of it would be a demonstration, but the very promise beforehand is a way to express his love for us. Manton also said his care for our security. For by his promise, he gives his people I like this word, a hold fast, H-O-L-D-F-A-S-T, a hold fast, kind of like a handle. Upon him as he makes himself a debtor to them by his own promise, who is otherwise free before such engagement to poor creatures. God doesn't have to make promises. But he does so out of his love. He does so out of care for our security. And as God, he makes us makes himself, rather, a debtor to us. And we wouldn't necessarily think of God that way, but based upon the promise, he does owe us what he said he would give. Now, we're not talking about, uh, obviously, the Lord has promises to provide our needs. He taught us to pray, give us a stay our daily bread, but we're not to ask for things according to our own lusts, our own wicked desires. James says that's not the kind of prayer that's answered. But to pray to God asking him for something that he has promised, Manton said, it is a mighty argument in prayer when we can plead that we're asking no more than God has promised. Lord, I'm not asking anything more than that you would do for me what you promised that you would do not asking him for something he didn't say. We're asking him to be faithful to what he did say. 
So why does God make promises? I think those are helpful answers. He does so because he loves us and he cares for us, and it does help us even in prayer. Now, one other thing is, why does he promise? And then there's just this delay, delay, delay. You're just waiting. Sometimes it seems like an eternity, and it never is. But because your mind is fixed on the thing, you're concerned about it, it seems to be so long before he waits to deliver according to the promise. What is he doing in the meantime? If he has promised and he's waiting and he has a timing, of course, that has to do with his wisdom. It also has to do with the reality of our faith. As he promises and we plead to him in prayer, that is a demonstration of our faith. As that is prolonged, our faith is growing in the Lord. We are trusting him and trusting him and trusting him. We keep on trusting him. He strengthens our endurance. He develops patience in our life. He tests our love all through his waiting to deliver on his promises. And he does teach us to pray. It's interesting. I'm just going to ask you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. God's purpose for his people is to pray, even when he has made promises of something that he will do. As he speaks to Israel, he promises blessing for the nation. Where there had been desolation and uninhabited cities and removal out of the land, God's grace and mercy was going to be shown to the nation in this promise, these promises. Notice in verse 9 of Ezekiel 36, he says, Behold, as he's responding um, in, in grace and kindness and with a purpose to restore them, he says, Behold, verse 9, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you will be cultivated and sown. And he's talking about the people. Verse 10, they had been decimated by war. Their people had dwindled. But he says, verse 10, I will multiply men on you, all the house of Israel, all of it. And the cities will be inhabited. And the waste places will be rebuilt. So that's the promise. That God would restore their population as a nation. But look at down in verse 37 in the same chapter, as he's made other gracious promises through the chapter, including the cleansing of the nation from their iniquity and their sin. There's a rebuilding of the cities, rebuilding of the waste places. Verse 37 says, Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, which would be a big flock ready for all those pilgrimage, uh, the people taking pilgrimages to offer the sacrifice, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So you think about that time, it's not just a few lambs, it's all kinds of them because there's all kinds of sacrifices taking place. And he's saying, that's what the population is going to look like 
He's made the promise to do that. He's made the prophecy to do that. But notice again, verse 37, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. It's prayer. There's the promise and the prophecy, but in the middle of that is the prayer. That's the link. God expects his people to exercise faith. Another passage back in 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel 21. David, during his reign, experienced a famine that was due to Saul's breaking of a covenant and putting the Gibeonites with which Israel had a covenant to death. Look at verse 21, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord. The Lord said, it is for the house, excuse me, it is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So if you read through the chapter, you see that David responded to the Gibeonites' concern because of the breaking of the covenant, and it did involve provisions that actually involved execution of Saul's sons. David spares Mephibosheth, verse 7, but there are men who died, seven, who fell together down in verse 9. They also went and got the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan from Jabesh Gilead, that seems to be linked to the circumstance here that for some reason, uh, even that loyalty of Israel needed to be shown to their king and to Jonathan, his son. But then verse 14, they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zila, in the grave of Kish, his father. Thus they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. In other words, the famine was related to the sin. God's provision of their needs, obviously in this time of discipline, the discipline was to help them to see that they had sinned. But God promised to provide their needs. But it wasn't like a switch that happened just when they did justice. In other words, God may have provided for them before, and they sinned, and he chastised them, but one other element was involved, and that was the prayers of God's people. And it, based on the reading of the chapter, what is taking place in 2 Samuel 21 is God is pleased with the justice that's done, but he's also not necessarily just going to do even what he's promised apart from that element of prayer. So I just want to encourage us about the promises of God. And when we know there's a promise that has been given to us and we're trusting in that, I think it's important to remember David's posture as he's petitioning the Lord, remember the word to your servant, remember the promise. Humble, he says, your servant, this isn't something I deserve. This is something that God has done for me graciously. And then as I hope in that, as I trust in that, then I can confess that hope 
And I can also recognize his purpose in the waiting time. And I think that's the hardest place to be. Isn't it? The waiting time. Because we know that God is good. We know that he's gracious. But in our experience, we're not seeing it. But we walk by faith and not by sight. And surely God will prove true. He always does. Look at verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. So remembering God's word in a time of affliction, he's confessing here that God's word is his comfort and his strength. The affliction that comes our way, I think you can even read through this psalm and see, is actually for our good. Verse 71, it was good or it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So God's afflicting us, drives us to his word, drives us to those promises. And that affliction happens within the plan and providence of God. You even look at the nation of Israel, and God said to Abraham, long before the children of Israel were in Egypt, that they were going to go into that land and that his descendants were going to be afflicted and suffer for Hundreds of years. They're going to go through a period of time in his plan where they suffered oppression. They were going to have, as we understand from what happened in Exodus, taskmasters who imposed labor on them. They were going to have the king of Egypt commanding that the sons be killed, be cast into the river. And so they... We're feeling the pain and distress and, in some cases, the loss, the injury, the harm, that affliction that came to them. And that's just a one portion of God's word. But Psalm 34 says it this way, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many. You got some afflictions? You got some difficulties? Feel like you're between a rock and a hard place? You have some suffering. Physical afflictions. Again, look back at Genesis. Sarai was barren. Hagar was mistreated. Leah was unloved by her husband. Joseph was sold by his brothers. Certainly there are more examples. And throughout the word of God, David is an example of someone who suffered affliction. Let me just list some others. Illness, prolonged illness, mistreatment, disrespect, unfulfilled desires, appropriate desires, false accusation, betrayal. If somebody curses you or speaks ill of you, gossips about you, slanders you, broken relationships, someone you love has an incurable disease, miscarriage of a child, financial oppression, no one to help you when you need help, someone you love has died or is dying. 
many of the afflictions of the righteous. Any of those fit you. Maybe yours didn't fit into that list, but you've got something you could say, this is an affliction. You know, the rest of that verse says there in the psalm, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. There's a God who cares. There's a God who sees. There's a God who knows. Job 36, 15, he delivers the afflicted in their affliction and opens their ear in time of oppression. And one of the things he does for us is he comforts us in our affliction, doesn't remove the affliction immediately. Again, this drives us to his word. It drives us to his promises. And when we go to his word and when we go to his promises, there's comfort and help and grace to find. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. I just ask you, how does God do that? If he's the God of all comfort, the God of mercies, and the Father of mercies, how does he bring that comfort our way? Well, it could be through the ministry of a believer who comes alongside us and helps us. I'm not trying to diminish that. But it is through his word that he ministers grace and help to us. Paul goes on to say, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Obviously, God's word, as it comes to us in a time of affliction, can be the very thing that lifts us up and sustains us and keeps us going. We need to look to it. So are you reading God's word? Are you in God's word? Are you listening to God's word? It could very well be even today that God has used his word or he's going to use his word, even from something you hear tonight, to sustain you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, to keep on going, to not quit. Don't give up. Have you had any verses today or recently that have comforted you in your affliction or maybe sometime in the past? I remember the first time I read with notice because we read a lot of things, don't we? And we don't always notice or pay attention to it. Sometimes it could be the circumstance that we're in, but it was Luke chapter 22. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And it's in the context of the whole gospel where Jesus had sent his disciples out two by two, and he had told them what to take. They're going out on an extended journey Here's what you take. And he refers to it in Luke 22, 35. He said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals. Okay, that's their supplies. They didn't have those things. He then says, you did not lack anything, did you? And you know what they said? No, nothing. They went out in faith. He told them to go out that way. 
and he provided. Now that provision for his disciples, they acted on faith and obedience to their Lord. That really is a comfort to us to know that God and Christ, as he deals with his servants, is not going to cause them to lack in a way that's going to debilitate them or keep them from ministering for him. Now, if he does give people, and sometimes he does give people a period of time where, like the children of Israel in the wilderness, they didn't have water, they didn't have bread, there's a reason for that. What was he teaching them? What does he teach us? We're so focused on the now and the things that we can touch that we forget that we need God more than those things. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's how he sustains us. It's him. And he was teaching them that. Have you had any other verses that have comforted you in your affliction? In other words, whatever your affliction is, and I I would guess if we went around the room tonight and just listed out things that we are afflicted with, all sorts of different things, but God's word can help us all of us, in our particular circumstance. What does David say? This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? He said to Jonah, very last portion of the book, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals. You say, how in the world could that be an encouragement? Well, it's the compassion of God on these little ones. The very last word, animals. Animals. God cares about animals. And as much as we would say they are not human beings and They don't have the same value. When you get attached to one and you've cared about one for a period of time, and then you realize in the midst of the sickness that that animal is going through, that there's a God in heaven who cares about animals too. He cares. Cast your care on him. So I don't know what it is, and I'm sure... Uh, there'd be plenty of opportunity to encourage one another by the the things that the Lord has used to encourage each one of us. And I hope as, as you go through your affliction that you're looking to the Lord and to his word for that encouragement, that is the source. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. The idea is strengthen me, strengthen my faith, strengthen my hope, strengthen my trust, strengthen my knowledge of you, Lord. Again, David is speaking to the Lord. I know it's 10 after. Let's just look at the next verse. I want to encourage us uh, with David's purpose here. Remember. Remember the promise The promise in which I take hope, David says in verse 49, 
The remembrance of God's word in the midst of affliction was what revived him, what comforted him. But in verse 51, it's opposition and scoffing. The word deride that's used there, he says, utterly deride me, totally deride me. The idea is laughing at with contempt and derision. The proud are doing that. David is experiencing persecution. It's like Jeremiah when he says, every time I speak, every time I cry aloud, he says, I become a laughingstock. Everyone mocks me. Jeremiah is living in the midst of a society that is believing in idols and worshiping idols, and his attempts to proclaim the Lord are going unheard, or if they are heard, it's just mockery that's coming his way. Jesus, of course, experienced the reality of scoffing, even before the cross, but even on the cross, they mocked him, they mocked his claims, the soldiers put on a parade of mockery as they crucified him, it was all derision and scorn and contempt. But he never once turned aside. He said, I always do those things that please the Father. And one of the tests of that was as he went through that experience of being scourged and mocked, beaten, punched in the face, all of the injuries from the crown of thorns to the nails in his hands and his feet and that whole shameful process of crucifixion. And you can beat Jesus and scourge Jesus and put him on a cross, but he's not going to turn from doing the Father's will. This is the Father's will. So David's resolution here is helpful to us, but Jesus' resolution is the perfect resolution. But what does it take for us to turn from doing God's will, to turn from obeying him. Have you ever been mocked for your faith in Christ or your desire to obey God? Have you been mocked for trying to be honest or a person of integrity? Have you ever been mocked because you're serious about things that pertain to God and his word? Has anyone ever rolled their eyes at you because of something you said as a reflection of your desire to please God? Does that cause you to turn aside? Thomas Manton said sometimes exact walking or an attempt to obey God invites that contempt. But when someone throws contempt on you because you're trying to please God, you're trying to do what he says, what are they really throwing contempt on? It's God's word. They're really mocking the idea that that's important. It's not just your behavior in conforming to it, but it's the thing itself, which is God's command. So don't forget that when you do obey God's word, when you do what is right according to God, that he is the one that you need to be looking at in order to please That mocking comes from blindness and ignorance. A person who does not have the Spirit of God does not understand spiritual things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 
They are also foolish. Wisdom is too high for a fool. They will not understand because they're not wise. They haven't been made wise by God. And they hate God. The world will love its own, but Jesus said, because I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And what do they do? Peter said in 1 Peter, they speak evil of you. And the reason they speak evil of you is because they hate God and they hate those who walk according to the commands of God. They also desire to sin and they're convicted when you do what's right and you're not like them. Not that you're doing it in pride and looking down on them, but if you're doing what's right, remember Abel's just doing what's right. Cain killed him. 1 John 3, this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And what, for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Manton also says in his description of all these elements, that invite sometimes the mocking. It's not because it's the wrong way. It's the right way. But sometimes people don't even want to understand. They don't even want to understand. If you try to explain to them why you're doing what you're doing, they just won't, they don't even want to listen. Why don't they want to listen? Because they want to continue in their sin. Again, conviction. David says here, the arrogant, the proud, utterly deride me. And yet, again, this godly resolution to continue following God's word in spite of that temptation. And that's not easy. It's not easy. Psalm 123, verse 3, be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. So it's hard to endure that, especially if it's prolonged, but it's still the right thing to do. And look to Jesus, because even when sinners contradicted him as the Son of God, he just kept on. And he, he fought against sin to the point of shedding blood. We need to be like Asahel, one of the sons of Zeruiah, David's sister. They're in a battle. It's a time when Judah and Israel are at odds, and they're fighting against one another in contest. And Abner, the commander of Israel, is there and Asahel is on David's side, and Asahel starts chasing Abner, and probably for glory, seems to be if you kill the captain of the other side that there's going to be some glory, and Asahel was swift of foot. He's like a gazelle, the scripture says, and he just kept running. And Abner said, is it you? And he said, yes, it is. He said, turn aside. Asahel wouldn't. He kept on running, and Abner warned him again. There was a a resolution, a determination, and he had a goal. It's the wrong goal. The right goal is to please God. 
don't be a people pleaser. Don't look to the world. If you do, you're not going to please God. You're going to turn to the right hand or the left. And you know the story, what happened to Asahel. That's the wrong kind of ending. Job said, my foot has held fast to his, referring to God's path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And David says, even when there are arrogant sinners utterly deriding me, I do not turn aside from your law. And you have to ask, based on the two, who's on the right path? Is it the arrogant? The proud? Is it the sinners? No, they're on a path to destruction. Christian in Pilgrim's Progress said, in my dream, the man began to run. He hadn't run far from his own door when his wife and children noticed what he was doing and cried out to him, come back, come home. The man put his fingers in his ears and ran on. Life, life, eternal life. He didn't turn to look at his house or home or family behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain. His neighbors also came out to see him run. The man continued to run, even though some of his neighbors mocked him, others threatened him, and some joined with his family and cried for him to return. And what path were they on? What's at the end of that path? The ones that are mocking you, the ones that are showing contempt for you, if you're on the Christian path, they're headed to destruction. Should be the opposite. We call them to follow us. What path is Christian on? Pliable wanted to know. What's at the end of this path? Christian said, there's an endless kingdom to be inhabited, an everlasting life to be given us in order that we may live in that kingdom forever. Brilliant, and what else? Well, there are crowns of glory to be given us and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the skies of heaven. You heard this before? That's pleasant news. Pliable says, what else? There shall be no more crying or sorrow, for he who owns the place will wipe away all tears from our eyes. And who will be there with us, Pliable wondered out loud. There will be seraphim. And cherubim, creatures that will dazzle your eyes. You also meet with thousands and ten thousands who have gone before us to that place. Everyone there will be loving and holy. Everyone walking about in the sight of God and standing in his presence with everlasting acceptance. In a word there, we shall see elders with their golden crowns and the holy virgins with their golden harps. And we'll see men who were cut in pieces by the world burnt in flames, eaten of beasts, drowned in all the seas, all because of their love for the Lord of the place. But he says all will be well and clothed with immortality as with a garment. So can we endure some contempt? In other words, look at the company. I'm not enduring the kinds of things that are mentioned in Hebrews. I'm not enduring the kinds of things that are mentioned in church history. If I am receiving contempt in my workplace, in my neighborhood, wherever it might be, just hold fast. Just keep on doing what's right. Keep on following the Lord. He's walking there with you, even if nobody else is. May the Lord help us all. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you and we are grateful tonight 
for the grace that you give to us through your word. And even tonight, as we have meditated on just these few verses, we pray that we'd receive the encouragement that there is from your word. Help us, Lord, to find comfort and hope in your word. Help us to take that hope and live according to it and petition you, Lord, ask you to fulfill your promises to us. You have directed us to do that. We pray that we might find the comfort and the strengthening that comes from your word even this week. And help us, Lord, to not turn aside whatever opposition we might face. Help us to remember the end of our life, that as we leave this life, we have a destiny to meet before you, before your throne, before your judgment seat. And we pray that we might live in the light of that. Help us to strive, Lord, to have what is said to those who serve you well. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.